Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Alison Whitaker. Alison is a Gomorrah poet and legal researcher from the floodplains of Gunnedah in New South Wales. Her first book of poetry was Lemons in the Chicken Wire, and her second, out last year, is Black Work. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. And Final Draft explores the best of Australia's books, writing, and literary culture. Each week we feature an Australian writer, explore their latest work, and in the Great Conversations podcast I have a chance to share more of these discussions and really help you get behind the books, and in this case the poetry that you love. And we're still celebrating Sydney Writers Festival at Final Draft. Just like last week, I've got two new episodes featuring some incredible new poetry to share. If you don't want to miss a thing, make sure you're subscribed. Wherever you get your podcast, just click on subscribe. It means a new Final Draft Great Conversation will be in at least once a week, this week too. If you also uh, give the show a rating, it's a great way to help your fellow book lovers find us and share the love of great Australian writing around. Alison Whitaker's Black Work collects her poetry and essays covering personal and social biography, satire and critique. It explores Alison's life as a First Nations woman and her experiences as a poet and a lawyer. I'm joined in the studio right now by Alison Whitaker. Alison is a Gomorrah poet and legal researcher from the floodplains of Gunnedah in New South Wales. Her first book of poetry was Lemons in the Chicken Wire. Her second, out last year, is Black Work, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Alison, thank you for coming into 2SER. Oh, yeah, Andrew. It's good to be here. Now, Black Work collects poetries, an essay, covering personal and social biography, satire, critique. It explores your life as a First Nations woman, as a poet, as a lawyer. It's not mine, though, to sort of categorize and say too much about. It's yours, your story, your collection. I was wondering if you could introduce it for me in your own words. Yeah. Black Work is a a multi-form collection of stuff um, that I tried to use to explain and provoke uh, a broader conversation about Indigenous labour, Indigenous bodies and Indigenous country, uh, and the work that they've been put to um, as kind of a supporting beam for the colony. Uh, and looking back into how that's happened, looking into the present, how people are trying to agitate against that, uh, and looking forward into the future about what the capacity for Indigenous labour means as an act of liberation. Mm. So when I when I initially approached Black Work, I I read it as I read any book of poetry. I jump around. I don't know if you're a, a straight through or a jump around person, but I um I tend to jump around, and then. I mean, it was only a week ago, mm-hmm. as we speak right now, that you you gave the Wheeler Centers the F word address. And after listening to what you had to say, I realized that I needed to do some work before we spoke. Mm-hmm. And in the address and in your conversation with Clergy Coleman, you spoke about audience. You mm-hmm. spoke about readership and the ways First Nation writers and writing is received by a wide audience or by any audience that uh, you guess I don't. You, you compared other ways of, of audience being controlled, mm. um, and I particularly like that that example of the, the military using poetry. Mm. Um, you also spoke about anti-colonial writing and decolonizing reading mm. and the body of works that we consume about the power of poetry and storytelling. Mm. That it's powerful when the audience takes up the challenge of the narrative, and that reading isn't simply an end in itself. Mm. So you got me thinking about what this what this might even look like as I sat down to reread many of the poems that I'd already touched on in Black Work. And I wanted to start with this because I knew I knew that it would be easy for us to have this conversation 
on the terms of my com- consumption of your work and my mm. understanding of your work, but I didn't, mm. I didn't want to do that. So you got me thinking um, that's going to mean acknowledging that when I learn about poetry, the way that I learn about poetry at school, at uni, was almost exclusively from old white guys mm. teaching dead white guys mm-hmm. who mostly were writing at a time when much of the crimes of colonialism were being committed. Mm. It would mean for me to acknowledge that my ways of speaking and thinking are not the only ways to formulate and express language mm-hmm. and that people who express, them, express themselves differently, they're not wrong just because their usage sounds different to mine. Mm. And it would also mean acknowledging that when I felt challenged, maybe attacked or that topic, topics or ideas contradict the world that I grew up in, mm-hmm. acknowledging that I guess I, I mean, I have the privilege to step back from that and I can step away from challenging thoughts and just continue my life, mm-hmm. that I can choose to engage with these ideas or not because they're not part of my everyday and my battle for recognition and legitimacy mm-hmm. and trying to approach it with those, with those eyes and trying to understand it. Now, I, I don't know if I'm doing this right, um, <laughs> but I wanted to share some of those thoughts because I know that many, if not most, of our listeners are going to be people like me. They're white, they're middle class, they're privileged, Mm. even if we're blind to it most of the time. Mm -hmm. And that if we start to do this, it's going to benefit us in reading our work, in reading all work. Mm. Um, That was a lot, sorry, and I'm going to shut up so that you can actually have a turn. That's fine. I mean, um, yeah, there's something good about confronting the reading process. Um, The the um, F word address references you were talking about, they are uh, the work of our associate professor Sandra Phillips, who's a, a scholar here at UTS, um, and of Evelyn Araluen, um, who's a PhD candidate at UCIB. And both of them are kind of working with really uh, complex theoretical frameworks about how people engage and disengage with work. Uh, one of the reasons I wrote and said what I said in the F word address um, was because of a. A, a very personal disappointment with how people engaged with work uh, and the kind of audience that I attracted. The the tension that I felt most strongly was that I was trying to present um, in Lemons and the Chicken Wire, which was my first book, trying to pr- paint an explanatory picture. Um, and the engagement that I got with that was um, with people kind of um, thinking of it as very uh, exotic or interesting. And that's not really what I wanted, like, to be consumed in that way as a full person rather than people engaging with the work itself and what it meant for them. And then when I wrote Black Work, it was in response to that. So I wanted to be a little more provocative. I wanted to be able to acknowledge um, that people like yourself are my dominant audience um, and also at the same time create a book that accepts that dominant audiences are a kind of collateral certainty of publishing, um, but really wanting to uh, affect and represent um, and be faithful to a black readership. And in, in both books, um, the, the largest audience that I attracted um, found ways to kind of sidestep, I think, what I was trying to do um, and found ways to assimilate the, the accusations, I think, that came in the book um, into evidence of their goodness. And Evelyn Araluen talks about this uh, when she writes about um, people thinking that it's enough to just read Aboriginal poetry as activism and that's kind of the end of it. Whereas actually we're trying to use it as a – well, um, I can't speak for everyone. Some Aboriginal poets um, are using poetry to urge political mobilisation or to urge – 
legal mobilization or to urge healing or um, to do something very purposeful. Um, but it's worth interrogating whether our readership is on the same page as us um, and the limitations of when you don't control your audience, um, how you can get them to do your bidding. It's a really, really hard task that I, I'm not well equipped for, um, but that's that's fine. I'm young. There are people much older than me doing this um, and they need to be acknowledged as well. So let's talk about work then. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a word that recurs throughout the collection, but I also want to talk about another another term that is gaining currency that we're gaining understanding of, and that's emotional labor, where emotional mm-hmm. labor lies. And it seems to me very much um, a, a traditional power dynamic is that the the dominant culture requires that emotional labor from everyone else mm. to for, use words like assimilate, to fit in, to if if they have a complaint to bring to the table, to do all the work to make the dominant culture understand. Mm. And the first poem I wanted us to talk about is actually the poem that opens the collection, Black Work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it ends with the line, um, and I, I love I love the way your work scans, the aesthetic of the way your work scans. Thank you. Because it, this line can be read in two ways, and it's, it starts with um, compulsory to do, but it can also be read as sorry to do. Mm. Sorry to do, indentured black work, something like nine to five forgiving you. And this, this theme of work and, and this juxtaposition of, of white work and black work, and I read white work as this, this ongoing damage being done. Just by doing nothing, this white work is continually damaging. Whereas mm. black work is, this, as you say, this nine to five forgiving you, this work that's required to somehow do the emotional labor, but then also forgive the people who want to make reading performative and and wring their hands about what, white guilt. Mm. Um, tell me about what you wanted to do with this idea of work in the book. Yeah, I mean that the poem that you're talking about was one of the first ones I wrote in the collection, and it was before I realised I was going to write a collection about work. I wrote it in response to it was part of a triptych uh, for a journal called the Suburban Review. Um, when I put it together, I was kind of infuriated um, about uh, how I felt um, in my workplace as a legal scholar, how I felt as a law student, kind of processing these things all the time. And um, it's something I really see emulated in um, that episode of Get Kraken um, with Miranda Tapsell and Nikia Louie. Uh, required viewing. Required viewing. Just, yeah, a riot in every sense of the word. Um I, I really loved it, but there's this monologue where Miranda Tapsell in, in um, the character that's crafted for her within um, the story of that episode talks about all these things that you kind of have to do um, in order to even just tread water at a workplace. Uh, and I think of that kind of as white work. So white work isn't really done by white people. Um, white people don't think of whiteness, um, whereas we work in um, ways that are very – very tightly cognizant of whiteness um, and conscious of how we have to navigate it. Uh, and in that episode, uh, Miranda Tapsell says, you know, you got to do, you got to make your eyes big, you got to always be smiling, you got to buy cupcakes for the crew so they like you. Um, and I was kind of feeling a similar moment. Um, I think of myself as a pretty sunny person. <laughs> um, and yeah, trying to work through uh, an entitlement to anger, an entitlement to withholding forgiveness. Um, which can be quite powerful. Um, so this concept of work kind of started 
within this like kind of gut frustration that um, ultimately had a real effect on my body, uh, caused like health complications and anxiety and mental health stuff. Um, but in taking the concept bigger than my body, um, also in the level of the collection, I think um, reflected something much more bigger and structural. It was much less about kind of the interpersonal stuff you do in the day to day uh, and more about seeing something that's constantly replicating the need for you to do so. Um, and that in a way was was gratifying to see as the collection came together that one, it wasn't just happening to me, which is both a good and bad thing to realize. Um, and two, that like as one individual, you bear a burden to work against it, but there's no way you can do it by yourself. I think that was probably one of my first lessons when I, when I went back and I, I reread. Um, and I'm not, not unfamiliar with this idea of whiteness because mm. it's, I mean, one, how could I not? It's the air that I breathe. <laughs> but also I, I, I'm familiar with the ways that it's being fought back against. White people don't like being told they're white. Mm. Um, but that I need to construct and understand my own whiteness to, to exist. Mm. And in reading your work, I realised that it would be tempting to read a poem and say, well, I've had a similar experience and then somehow I have some, some empathy, some insight, some, some into that poem. Mm. But also not. If I'm able to successfully construct my whiteness, I know that my experience would be completely different mm. if I were put in the same circumstance. Mm. I wanted to I, – I thought I had a flow to the poems I wanted to talk about, but I'm going to jump oh, – can I jump ahead? You can do whatever you like, but I really like what you, what you said um, – about the limits of empathy. Um, I think we're, we're told a lot that, especially um, as uh, the far right in Australia becomes increasingly mobilised, increasingly emboldened, we're told that we need to project an air of empathy and that it's like, you know, a, a culture of mutually held extremism that's ca causing this stuff. Killing with extreme kindness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, I mean, we don't have to mm. deify ourselves, but, like, mm. it, it's not the same thing um, to say sovereignty. Yeah, so it's, okay. yeah, there's no there's no equivalence, really, to be, to be had between the two. I actually can't remember where I was going with this point, but um, recognising that empathy is kind of a dead end because of that, um, realising that, it's okay to acknowledge the difference in experience that reflects a structural problem um, and that the the constant urge to be appealing um, and empathetic gaze from whiteness can sometimes put us on the back foot in performing goodness as a way to kind of get to the rights that we want to articulate, uh, whereas we kind of just have them because they're inherent. We don't have to be, you know, um, good empathetic people in order to attain them. Yeah, I feel like I mean, as a kid, you know, we're growing up. You're told it's a multicultural country, and that you know we don't we don't see difference because we're all alike and we're all a big in a big multicultural melting pot. And almost like this idea that something is different is bad. And mm. and that's why I wanted to, to talk about this next poem because one of the ways that difference is signaled in our everyday is in language, in the mm. way that we talk. Um, and the poem that really really struck me was guesswork. So after I heard your F word address, I guessed that this poem referred <laughs> to the story that you shared there of having your accent kind of basically shaped out of you by a, a teacher. Well picked. Mm. And this, well, this, this gutted me for, for many reasons, which I'm talking too much, so we can go into Talk. it. Talk. It's um, good. But in that poem, in guesswork, it's, it's a circle as, as these two words 
Um, and mm. as they scan on the page, you could read them both as gone and gone, or you could read them with broader and more clipped sort of gone and gone. Mm. And as they play around each other and they even confound the reader to, to recognize where that difference in similarity may exist. Mm. And it got me thinking about the way we, we do talk, but the way we also privilege certain ways of talking. I mean, I guess the old, is it called the old, the BBC English that um, oh, yeah. once upon a time, if we wanted to be standing in front of a radio, we both have to have that sort of, you're listening to the news at nine sort of BBC English. But what is it about linguistic difference do you think that scares people and, and makes us want to flatten? Yeah, I mean, so I'll tell the story that I told in the F word address, which is, uh, you know, when I was in year seven, I was invited up um, to do a reading at the end of year school assembly. Um, I went up to do the reading at the rehearsal. Um, and at the time I had quite a, what I would describe as a, a good thick accent that I really liked and that the rest of my family talk in. Um, and it's a, a racialized accent and it's also a classed accent. Um, I was going to uh, a local private school at the time uh, and they had a very different audience to the one that I was used to. So they kind of put me up there to, to deliver this reading uh, and I said the word gone and um, I can't even replicate it now. This is the extent to which it's been trained out of me. But swallowing the oh sound um, and I thought I'd done an excellent job at the reading at the rehearsal but then um, – teachers quietly took me aside and gave me vocal training for what they thought was um, a deviance in how I delivered it. Because as you can imagine, a private school, the end of year assembly is kind of like a, a show that everyone's getting them, you know, what they're paying for. Um, and if I came in with that accent, they would think that their children weren't being cultured in, you know, the white upper class old rural money way that they wanted. Um, and so, yeah, we sat together and over time I relearned how to say the word gone until I said it with the front of my mouth. Um, and since then, that was kind of the start, but there's been a long trajectory of me losing that accent, and it's very, very hard to get back. Um, and for me, that just kind of stands as a, a really cognizant metaphor of what it means to b become institutionalized um, and to become complicit in institutions, um, which is a, a much more complicated conversation. But for me that linguistic difference marked a point it's hard to articulate marked a point where I began to navigate that complicity and be much more conscious of what I had what I felt I had to give up mm. um in order to get approval from the white gaze uh and that's something I deeply regret now yeah. and so I mean to clarify for any listener you were speaking English. You were speaking, yes. effectively, you were speaking what we can call an invader tongue um, for you. It was it was not a question of you being misunderstood. It was no. a question of you not passing in a certain way in that environment. Mm. And that's, that's what really challenges me because, again, I think about growing up and this idea that we spoke one language and sometimes I heard it said, and I'm, probably, I'm sure as a kid I probably repeated this, that, you know, oh, well, Australia is a landlocked country and... We only have one tongue and that's why we're not multilingual. And then growing up and learning, there's hundreds of languages and there's less. Mm. There's less than there once was. But we're in no way a monolingual nation. No. And yet somehow that has has been drilled into us that there is one way of speaking. Mm. And, then, and then that one language has to be drilled into this one very vanilla way of realising. 
Yeah, and there's multiple Englishes as well. So there's Aboriginal Australian English, um, which, yeah, I, I guess I would say that I speak and I spoke. Um, and there's a plurality of how people use um, that tongue. And, I mean, for, for a poet, that's fantastic because uh, it's all kind of about playing with the language and the syntax and everything and pulling apart how we come to make meaning. But it was that process, I suppose, of being trained out of my voice that made me most cognizant of the power of language and expression um, and the importance of deviating from, um, I guess, the respectability politics of, yeah, clipped English. I'm going to throw a freebie here. Sure. Um, so it would be fair to say then that maintaining a particular type of English is a, is a power thing. There's a, there's, a, there's a power in saying this is the way you speak mm. if you want to attain certain levels of influence, power and the like. Mm. That's a freebie. I don't know that that's controversial. No. How though, how though does literature, how though does poetry give us a chance to address that and maybe, maybe change that? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to be a bit humble and realistic about what poetry can and can't do. Um, yeah, I mean, um, poetry in print is kind of going out to an audience who, for the most part, use this English. Um, the English that's not contained in this book, but the other dominant English. Um, and to that extent, I'm, I'm not sure how much poetry can change there. For me, the process was really important. And there are other ways of using poetry that aren't about putting it in a collection and sending it out into the world. Like I think of the work of Curly Saunders, who is at Red Room Poetry Company, um, doing amazing work with like poetry in first languages, doing incredible educational and outreach work. That's really significant. It means so much to go through that process um, of mediating meaning making um not just as like not even as an act of therapy about anything individualized but actually about going into a deep reflection of how how we talk and what it means to talk to one another what it means to be heard um that i think is really powerful and under acknowledged uh, in the poetry i guess sphere which um you know can kind of become all about cohesive collections and literary prizes and, you know, um, syntactical playfulness. Um, but then I see things like the, the recent growth of uh, slam poetry on this continent, especially driven by Bankstown Poetry Slam, um, and that's just a completely different way of building community using poetry that's predicated um, on exactly that, on being heard uh, and talking new ways. Read your poetry out loud, even on the train, or develop what I've done. <laughs> on the train. <laughs> I read a lot on the train. Yeah, so, mad. so reading poetry is a challenge because I want to read it aloud. So I've, I, I've developed an internal poetry voice. Mm, um, good stuff. Which, uh, which although um, Meg Wallitzer, if you were at the opening address the other night at the Sydney Writers' Festival, did uh, a wonderful parody of, of the poetry reading voice. I know. Mm. We're awful. <laughs> <laughs> so... So many things I want to talk about, but I want to yeah, move, no I want to move to a, a poem that was a favourite for a few reasons, and mm -hmm. that's framework. Mm -hmm. um, I picked this, as I said, for a few reasons. Selfishly, I wanted to to ask generally about the structural aesthetics of your work, and mm -hmm. this is something that I'm going to encourage every. If you're listening on the podcast, pause right now, buy black work, open up to page 152 to framework, and the way this poem is organized and there are, this is not by no means the only one but the way this poem is organized um, is fantastic what what does what does structural aesthetics mean to you in your in your work yeah i mean it it's sometimes just fun to do 
Um, so this poem is about uh, weaving, so it adopts a weaving structure, um, not the weaving I'm talking about, but it's, uh, yeah, so the lines are interwoven, so there's horizontal line, vertical line, horizontal line, vertical line, to create kind of like a patchwork effect. Um, and I think it just really drives home the subject matter that we're talking about, but also it gives um, gives the reader a bit of pause. Uh, there's like a bit of effort involved in going into the reading, um, and in that extent, I think you can make people focus on words a lot more clearly um, and introduce new kind of slippages in meaning like you were talking about with um, the first poem, Black Work, what it means to see something like compulsory broken down into its components until it looks like sorry. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, the joy of page poetry is that you have a lot of latitude in forcing your reader or listener mm. to do particular things. Um, and so, yeah, laying things out differently on the page is a great way to do that. I also wondered about the recursive nature of um, the relationship, I guess, between First Nations people and white invader culture. Mm -hmm. The poem finishes with the line, how do we arrange you to carry you with us and how are we thus arranged? How does, how does emotional labour shape the people that are doing it and... Mm -hmm. And can I can that be addressed? I'm sorry, I'm actually asking that question mm -hmm. is an act of putting emotional labor on you, but yeah. I'm still very I'm still very curious about this process. Yeah, I mean I see a lot of conversations about emotional labor happening online and um yeah, they, they interest me in a, in a few ways, I think. Um the connotation that emotional labor has developed is that it's a bad thing and not part of the innate way that we relate to one another. So when I think about how we're talking about emotional labor. It seems like a, um, uh, yeah, a very, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, a very, a very thin combative conversation. Um, whereas I think my goals in thinking about emotional labor are about mutual contribution to it. So the reason that we have to do so much is that because other people aren't picking up their slack. Um, and, and I guess it's a bad thing when it's one-sided. Yeah, well, I mean, that's true, but I don't think that's really happening in this in interaction <laughs> between you and me. Um, yeah, so there's, there's, there's an extent to which we will never see the emotional labor that we have to do because, I mean, you said um, about whiteness, it's the air around you, but, you know, um, the last thing a fish thinks about is water. Mm. Um, and the last thing I think about sometimes is emotional labor. Um, but I've benefited immensely from the emotional labor of other people who have um, supported me to this point um, and who have done what the crucial work of making another human human and making um, another, yeah, making a whole other world contained in within one person is an immense community effort that doesn't get appreciated enough. Uh, and then it's my duty to reciprocate that. I guess it's the external one-sided imposition of emotional labor that I want to combat but even that can become, I think, I don't want to impose this on anyone else, even that I think can become an invitation for uh, relating in new ways um, that can be about a more mutual exchange of labor. The voice you're listening to is Alison Whitaker. She is a Gomorrah poet and legal researcher. She is the, uh, the author, the poet behind Black Work, the collection we have been discussing poems from. I'm incredibly grateful for you coming in and, and, and just the chance to discuss just a, a small part of this collection. I'm going to encourage everyone to go out and get a copy. Thank you so much, Alison. Oh, thank you. Pleasure's mine. That's it for this great conversation with Alison Whittaker. Alison's latest poetry collection is Black Work, and it's out now through Mugabala Books. 
Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, follow us on Twitter, Instagram and on Facebook. If you look for at Final Draft 2 ser you'll, uh, you'll be able to keep up. You can also click subscribe in your podcast app wherever you're getting your podcasts. It means you'll have a new great conversation every week. You can keep up with all the greatest writing. My name is Andrew Popel and I'll be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading.